All right, if you have a copy of God's Word there in front of you, go ahead and grab it and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 17. Um, while you're doing that, let me welcome everybody that's joining us on Facebook. So when our uh, almost four-year-old, Chandler, uh, says the blessing before dinner, she always thanks God for the same three things in the same order. She'll say, Dear God, thank you for this food, thank you for these drinks, and thank you for my family. So she stops just short of thanking the Lord for the plates, the cups, the silverware, the table, and napkins, right? But she has, has this habit of thanking God for the things that are directly in front of her, her food, her drink, and her family. And of course, when we pray, we follow a similar pattern. You know, we pray about what is directly in front of us. We pray about what is most important to us. We pray about what's happening around us. We pray about what is weighing most heavily on us. And what's really interesting about our passage for today is that here in John 17, we get an inside look into the heart and mind of Jesus Christ on the evening before his death. The title for today's sermon is The Lord's Prayer, and I, and I workshopped a few different names, almost called it The Other Lord's Prayer, almost called it Another Lord's Prayer, but in reality, this, this prayer in John 17 is more of the Lord's Prayer than the other prayer recorded in the other Gospels. You know, that prayer should probably be more accurately called the Disciples' Prayer. If you remember, it starts with the disciples saying, Lord, teach us to pray. And, and that prayer has become a, an example for us. But here in John 17, we see Christ giving his final petitions to his father before Judas shows up with the authorities to arrest him. Now, before we start reading and before we dive into it, let me just point out that there is some really heady, rich, deep theology in these 26 verses. And we will not be able to cover everything. We'll not be able to deal with every verse. If we did, we wouldn't get to chapter 18 until Thanksgiving and y'all would remove me from the pulpit. Okay, so we're, we're going to be taking sort of the bird's eye view and, and hitting on some of the larger themes of the chapter. Now, depending on your, your translation, you may already see that this, this chapter is divided out into three separate paragraphs. It, it has a nice, neat little outline. You know, first, verses 1 through 5. Jesus prayed for himself. He prayed that he would be glorified. And then in verses 6 through 19, Jesus prayed for his disciples. He prayed that they would be sanctified. And then in verses 20 through 26, Jesus prayed for his future church. Or another way of saying that, Jesus prayed for us, that we would be unified. So, so that's the outline for today. That, that's where we're heading. So let's start, let's read this, this first section together. So starting in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. In this eternal life, they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world 
existed. So first, Jesus prayed for himself. Jesus prayed that he would be glorified. You know, as he's praying, his petition is clear there in verse 5. He plainly says, Father, glorify me. Now, in these five verses, we see five different references to the glory of God or glorifying God. So, so let's start with understanding these concepts, because these are sort of church words, right? These are not words that you would just use out in public. Glorify is, is, is a church word. So D.A. Carson provides a solid explanation for us. He says, the glory of God is a noun. It means his majesty. It means his, his splendor. It means his, his beauty. It means his display of his divine goodness. And then God being glorified is a verb. It means honoring him. It means celebrating him uh, with the appropriate response to his goodness displayed. Okay, so the glory of God, the noun, is his goodness displayed. And glorifying God, the verb, is his goodness celebrated. So when Jesus was praying to his Father to be glorified, he was asking for his goodness to be seen and celebrated by his Father. You know, in, in the simplest terms that we can use, Jesus is asking the Father to make a big deal out of me. That, that's essentially the quest that he's making. You can almost take this, this childlike definition and, and put it in other, verses in other verses in John that talk about his glory and would carry the same meaning. For example, John 8, 54. If you change that around, it would say, Jesus replied, If I make a big deal of myself, my big deal means nothing. My Father who you claim is your God is the one who makes a big deal of me. You know, or John 12, 28. Father, make a big deal of your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I've made a big deal of it, and I'll make a big deal of it again. And so if we follow this same pattern... We can take verse 5 and we can discover the essence of Christ's first petition to the Father. He essentially says, Father, make a big deal of me in your presence that I may turn around and make a big deal of you. Now you may be thinking, isn't this a little vain for, for Christ to ask this? Isn't this a little conceited for Christ to openly ask to be glorified? Because after all, for us, this is a, this is a counterintuitive idea. You know, this seems really self-centered to us. You know, right now in, in my house, as I'm raising three children under six, one of the most common pieces of parental advice that I give is, hey, the world doesn't revolve around you. I go to the well with that one a lot. We often say things like, hey, stop whining about the end of screen time. The world doesn't revolve around you. Hey, stop complaining about what's on the menu for dinner. The world doesn't revolve around you. You know, and we do this because I've heard it said before, if you don't believe in the total depravity of the human race, you should spend more time around toddlers. You know, when you watch a precious, angelic two-year-old run across the room and push down another kid, and snatch away a toy and say, mine, you quickly realize man is born with a sinful nature. Man is born with self-centeredness built into his DNA. So this is why from an early age, from the very beginning, parents remind their children, you are not the center of the universe. It's not all about you. 
And so because we're ingrained with that teaching, we don't have a category for what Christ is asking here. I mean, imagine if I stood in the pulpit in our next quarterly church business meeting and said, Church, I have a recommendation. You know, I've been here for a little over a year, and, and I've been working really hard, so I, I'm going to make a motion that we throw a party in my honor. I'm going to make a motion that we take a day and celebrate me. You know what? Next Sunday is going to be Pastor Bo Appreciation Day. And we're going to have dinner on the grounds, and we're going to buy some inflatables, not for the kids, for me. We're going to buy an inflatable for me to jump in. And we're going to spend the whole day showering me with love and support and giving me pats on the back. Who's in? Now, I can, I can confidently say that although this church has cared for my family in countless ways over the last year, that y'all are going to draw the line somewhere. And it's probably me planning a party for myself. You know, you would rightly ask, where is your humility, pastor? You would rightly ask, why are you making such self-centered plans, pastor? Because we can't wrap our minds around this idea that someone would say, hey, can you make a big deal of me because I deserve it? And so we're naturally confused by what Christ is asking here. But we need to remember, it's not wrong to be self-centered when you are the sinner. We need to remember that Christ is not some spoiled trust fund baby. That he is the sovereign king over all creation. That he is actually the center of the universe, so he's well within his rights to ask to be the center of attention. Plus, we should be careful in charging Christ with vanity or self-centeredness because we understand exactly how he will be glorified. Look at verse 1 again. He lifts up his eyes to heaven and says, Father, the hour has come. And so once again, we're back to the hour, and throughout the Gospel of John, we've seen Christ talk about this approaching hour. And most of the time he says, the hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. Now he's saying the hour has come. This hour that will be the climax of his mission. This hour that will be the moment of his death. So understand when Christ says, Father, glorify me. He's not saying, Father, give me praise. Father, give me accolades. Father, give me awards. Father, give me honor, give me respect, give me support. Father, celebrate me. That's not what he's asking, though he's deserving of those things. He's saying, Father, allow them to murder me. Father, let's go through with your plan. I mean, this is the mystery of the cross, that the supreme moment of Christ's glorification looked like a supreme moment of his humiliation. When he says, Father, glorify me, he's saying, glorify me by crucifying me. And this is why we make a big deal of Jesus and not ourselves. This is why we make a big deal of Jesus and not our churches. We make a big deal of Jesus because he willingly and obediently fulfilled the Father's plan and went to Calvary. And he was lifted up in shame on the cross and he was lifted up in glory in heaven. And we also need to understand that this wasn't God's backup plan. This was the plan from the beginning. Look at verse 2. Since you have given him, this is Jesus talking about himself, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And then down in verse 5, And now, Father, 
glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I have with you before the world existed. So again, we could spend weeks unpacking the theological implications of these verses, but in the simplest terms, these verses hint at an agreement made between Father and Son in eternity past. And an agreement made between Father and Son before the world existed. That they created this redemptive plan for mankind because they knew that mankind would fall short. And the plan was that the Son would take on flesh and the Son would create a path for an unrighteous people to become righteous before holy God. And that the Father would glorify the Son by returning Him to His original position and assisting Him in drawing sinful men, women, and children to Himself. It's crucial that we understand this because there's so much misunderstanding surrounding the cross. We need to understand the cross was not an act of cosmic child abuse. It was not a vengeful father pouring out his wrath on an unwilling son. And the cross was not a random occurrence. It was not a misunderstood son who suffered bad luck and unjust death while his father was asleep at the wheel. No, the cross was the eternal pact of the Father and Son. The cross was the original and only redemptive plan. The cross was the means for securing the salvation of God's people. And the Son is on His way to complete His duty, and so He asked the Father to glorify Him. And we know that's what the Father did. He vindicated Him through His resurrection. He exalted Him in the church, and he will celebrate him in eternity. In Revelation 5, we get a picture of what this will look like. This, this future scene of in heaven where all will cry out with one voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. So that's Christ's first petition. That he would be glorified. And then starting in verse 6, he shifts his attention to his 11 remaining followers. Alright, so y'all bear with me. This is the longest section. But in verses 6 through 19, he prays for the disciples. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. They have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them had been lost except the son of destruction, that's Judas, that scripture might be filled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. You are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. 
Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate them that they may be sanctified in the truth. So again, there, there's a lot there. Um, but I want to focus on one thing that, that Christ says. The second point is that Christ prayed his disciples would be sanctified. And we see this in verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. End of verse 19. They may also be sanctified in the truth. So after praying for God to glorify him, he prayed for God to sanctify his disciples. On four separate occasions, he references the disciples as, as those who you have given me. And we see it in verse 2. All whom you gave me. We see it twice in verse 6. The people you gave me out of the world... And you gave them to me. And we see it in the middle of verse 9. For those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Now, now we should note this, this verb, have given, in the original language is in the perfect tense. That means the action is happening in the past and the results are continuing into the present. So in the past, God chose his disciples. In the present, the disciples chose him. So, so once again, we're forced to to reckon with this mysterious balance between God's sovereignty and human freedom. And so we realize that God didn't choose the disciples based on their morality. God didn't choose the disciples based on their potential. God didn't choose the disciples based on their, uh, their good works. He chose them because he loved them. You know, listen how Paul describes this exchange in Ephesians 2. He says, But God, being rich in mercy because of great love, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. And so God worked in their hearts. God drew them in. God sent the Spirit. And we see in verse 6 that they kept the Father's word. And we see in verse 8 they received it through the teaching of Jesus. And they came to understand and believe what God had said. So the disciples were responsible for their belief, but their belief was a result of what God had already done. Does that make sense? I know, it doesn't, but just bear with me. Let me try to simplify this for you. Think about it this way. Let's say you're serving in the nursery on a Sunday morning. And by the way, that doesn't have to be hypothetical. We have opportunities for you to serve in the nursery on Sunday morning. So as we're working this illustration, if you really can visualize yourself there, let's talk after the service. So let, let's set the scene. You're working in the nursery on Sunday morning. My youngest, Trip comes walking into the room, looking adorable as usual. And you decide to engage Trip in conversation, which is going to be a one-sided affair because he has little to no interest in talking. And by the way, if he did, he's got two older sisters and he couldn't get a word in any way. But, but you engage him in conversation, and you ask him, you say, you look so nice. Did you take a bath this morning? Tripp smiles at you, nods his little head. You say, you're, you're happy today. Is your tummy full? Did you, eat a, did you eat a big breakfast? Again, he smiles, nods his head. And you say, I, I like your outfit. Did you get dressed in your Sunday best this morning? And once again, he smiles and nods his head. So you've asked Tripp three questions. And Tripp affirmed all three questions. He took a bath, he ate breakfast, and he got dressed. But I can promise you that's not the full picture. 
I can promise you that Tripp had some help in those tasks. He may have taken a bath, but Lacey drew the bath for him. Lacey lathered him in soap. Lacey rinsed him off, and Lacey dried him off. He may have ate breakfast, but Lacey cooked the breakfast. Lacey set the table, and Lacey cleaned up his mess. He may have gotten dressed, but Lacey washed his clothes. Lacey changed his diaper, and Lacey put his outfit on his little squirmy body. So yes, technically, Tripp took a bath, ate breakfast, and got dressed. But he didn't work alone. See, Lacey did the work that Tripp couldn't do himself. And Tripp simply followed her lead. So in the same way, God does the work of calling sinners to salvation through the gospel. And then our responsibility is to repent and believe in the message. Alright, so let's turn our attention to, to the main point of this section. Verse 17. Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. And again, this is another fancy church word. So let's make sure we're on the same page. To sanctify means to set apart or to make holy. The sanctification process is the journey of the Christ follower to become more Christ-like. And in the, the verses that precede 17, Christ describes what this process looks like. Starting in verse 14, he says, I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And so for the rest of their lives and for the rest of their ministries, the disciples dealt with this difficult balance of being in the world, but not of the world. And we're familiar with this concept, and we certainly understand the struggle of walking this fine line. But if we aren't careful, we can carelessly slide into a couple of bad habits here while pursuing this difficult calling to be in the world and not of the world. If we're not careful, we can practice isolation, where we believe in protecting the gospel but not sharing the gospel where we attempt to remain faithful to God's Word by separating ourselves from non-Christians completely, where we become ingrained slowly with this us-versus-them mentality where we're right and they're completely wrong, where we don't consider that the same grace that was once extended to us through the Gospel has the same power to transform our lost neighbor, co-worker, or friend. And so if we go down this road, our, our desire to remain faithful to God's truth causes us to disregard God's mission. Or we can slide into practicing inclusion. This is where we believe the gospel grants us some sort of immunity from temptation and worldliness. So we fully immerse ourselves in the culture. And we slowly blur the lines between Christian and non-Christian, between the church and the world. And we minimize biblical teaching on sin and repentance and live exactly as our non-Christian neighbors. And when we go down this road, we can slowly slip to a point where we care more of the approval of men than the approval of Christ. And where our desire is to remain faithful to God's mission, but we disregard God's truth. And so what I want you to see is that as we pursue sanctification, we must find the middle ground between isolation and inclusion. 
Because true discipleship is not isolation from the world. And true discipleship is not inclusion of the world. True discipleship is living like Jesus Christ within the world. David Platt rightly states, our mission is not to disinfect Christians and put them on a shelf. Our mission is to disciple Christians and put them into service. So here's the balance for us. Jesus wants us in the world. Jesus wants us rubbing elbows with the lost. Jesus wants us inviting non-Christians into our home. Jesus wants us living in the culture, but he doesn't want us shaped by the world. He wants us shaped by the truth. He wants us sanctified in the truth. Now let's look at the final section. Verse 20. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be in us, so the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me that may become perfectly one so the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as I loved you. Father, I desire they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in me. Now in the ESV, that's a little confusing, but you can definitely pick up on those themes of unity. There's a lot of I and me and you and them and me and I and all that stuff. But unlike the first two requests, this final request is ongoing. Right, understand that Christ prayed that he would be glorified, and he was. Christ prayed that the disciples would be sanctified, and they were. They finished the race well, all the way to the point of suffering brutal deaths. They stayed the course. And then finally, Christ prayed his church would be unified. And, and, and talking about the big C universal church, we have some work to do here. We have a lot of work to do here. And so... But before we dig into this concept of unity within, within the local church, I want you to notice that Christ stops short of praying for the whole world. As he's praying, he's, he's gradually expanding his scope. He prays for himself, he prays for his close circle of friends, and he prays for those who will follow him, but he doesn't pray for anyone else. In fact, if you look back at verse 9, he said plainly, I'm not praying for the world. Instead, I'm praying for those whom you've given me. Instead, I'm praying for those who will believe in me through their word. Instead, I'm praying for my current disciples, and I'm praying for my future disciples. But he doesn't pray for the world. So we need to ask the question, why doesn't Christ pray for the rest of the world here? Now, obviously, it wasn't because he was apathetic towards the world or he didn't care about the world. After all, the most famous verse in this gospel, and maybe the whole Bible, is John 3.16, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, to have eternal life. So God 
love the world, but in this moment he prioritized praying for the church over praying for the world because the church was his primary plan for changing the world. The church was his primary plan for changing the world. Through the church, the world engages with the gospel. Through the church, the world encounters Christ. Through the church, the world experiences the Father's love. This is why it's so crucial for the church to be unified. This is why it's so crucial for the church to display a picture of biblical love. Let's read verses 20 and 21 again. Jesus says, I don't ask for these only, that's the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that's, that's us. And then his prayer for us starts in verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So the world may believe that you have sent me. Now don't miss this, that... On his way to the cross, Christ prayed for you. With, with the weight of the world on his shoulders, with the sins of the world on his back, Christ stopped for a few moments and he prayed for you. He prayed that his church would be unified. He prayed that we would all be one. So the gospel message would be more effective in the world, that the church would look different than the world. Let me ask you a question. When you look at the world outside of these four walls, is it divided? Is unity a word that you would ever use to describe our culture? Is unity a word that you would ever use to describe our country? So if the culture is that divided and the church is unified, do you see where we stand apart? Do you see where we stand out? Do you see where we become attractive to those that are outside of the church? This is what Christ is is driving at. And he goes on to say that the unity of the church is is modeled, enabled, and enacted by the triune God. He says, Father, just as you are in me and I in you, they may also be in us. In other words, Father, just as, as, as you and I are distinguishable, have different attributes, yet are perfectly united, the church will be this melting pot of different backgrounds, different preferences, different gifts, different appearances, and different abilities, yet they will be perfectly united in and through me. And so since Christ was praying about us, we should take a few minutes to seek application for us. And so let's complete this picture of unity. In these last six verses, we see four characteristics of a unified church from the text. I want to work through these quickly. First, a unified church has a shared understanding of our new identity. You'll remember back in in John 15, Jesus says, I am the true vine. And we flesh that out. He is the true vine, and, and we are the branches. At the moment of salvation, we are placed in him, and our strength, our guidance, our nourishment comes directly from the vine. When we are saved by grace, we receive a new identity in Christ. We are brought into this new community of brothers and sisters with the same identity. You know, in our divided world, we we consistently fixate on all the ways that we're different. We love drawing these dividing lines. We love putting ourselves in different categories politically, economically, and socially. 
We see where the world disagrees about countless topics. I think I've said this before, but I heard someone say one time, if you want to start an argument on the internet, step one is write anything. Step two is wait. But someone will have a different opinion than you, and they will argue with you about it. And so, we must understand that because we share the same identity with Christ, that we can have this unmatched unity in the midst of incredible diversity. That this new identity makes us family. On three different occasions in these verses, Christ mentions the Father. And through His work, we are adopted into God's family. We move from wretched strangers to beloved children, and we are given a new name. And so there won't always be, we won't always agree on everything, right? There will be things that we disagree on, things that you say we should do one way and I say we should do another way, but the, the, the foundational connection for this body of believers is that we have the same name in Jesus Christ. Second, a unified church has a shared commitment to biblical instruction. This week I was looking over the results of the, the 2020 State of Theology survey. This is a survey that, that Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research team up on every two years. And, and the way they describe it is that they, they take the theological temperature of the U.S. and reveal what Americans believe about God, uh, Jesus, the Bible, sin, worship, and ethics. And I was very discouraged by some of the results I saw from the group that define themselves as evangelicals. So they would be, you know, conservative Christian believers. Here's a few eye-opening statistics according to their research. 23% of evangelicals believe religious belief is a matter of personal opinion, not objective truth. 39% believe God will always reward true faith with material blessing. 46% believe the Holy Spirit is a force and not a personal being. 22% believe gender identity is a matter of choice. 46% believe everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. 42% believe God accepts worship from all religions. And most disturbingly, 30%, almost one-third, believe Jesus Christ was a great teacher, but he was not God. And so I, I share that with you because in, in the Bible Belt, we can become complacent in our pursuit of biblical truth. We can become satisfied with raking leaves instead of digging trenches. We can become satisfied with staring at the glory of God through a tiny keyhole. But our unity is a byproduct of our shared commitment to the ministry of the Word. In verse 23, when Jesus used the word glory, He's talking in the sense of revelation, that the disciples would receive revelation from Him, that they were witnesses to His works and His Word, and they would pass their experiences along to us. And so we should never take their labor for granted. We must push each other to a deeper understanding of biblical truths. Third, the unified church has a shared pursuit of sacrificial love. Christ essentially says in verses 23 and 26 that we will know and experience that God loves us with the same love God has for Him. So as we experience God's supernatural, selfless, sacrificial love 
for us, we should see the overflow of that become the way that we love others. You know, in the New Testament, we're given a high bar for how we should treat other people. Among other things, we're instructed to bear one another's burdens, instruct one another, forgive one another, pray for one another, submit to one another, encourage one another, provoke one another, not to anger, but to love and good works. A true unity requires sacrificing for one another. True unity requires being intentional with one another. True unity means when a family in our fellowship is hurting, we don't just acknowledge it. We don't just say, hey, I'll pray for you. We don't just add them to a prayer list. We hurt with them. True unity means when a sister feels rejected, we accept her. True unity means when a brother falls into sin, we help him. True unity looks like the entire body of believers locking arms together and walking through the hills and valleys of life. That's what it looks like to pursue sacrificial love for one another. And then finally, and maybe most obviously and most importantly, a unified church has a shared disdain for selfish divisions. Now, we understand that, that Christ sets a, a lofty standard for us. I mean, he prays that we may become perfectly one. And I can tell you, perfect is something that we will never be. Right? We understand that. Obviously, we will never have perfect unity, but we should never be content with where we're at. We should never stop and say, hey, you know, we're probably unified enough. We're probably in a good place. We should continue to pursue perfect unity all of our days. You know, if you were given a hundred Skittles and told that three of them were poison, you're not going to eat a single skill until you get the poisonous ones out. So in the same way, disunity, division, and broken relationships, they're like poison in the church, and we shouldn't be satisfied until every problem, every dispute, and every issue is dealt with biblically. Because John MacArthur rightly observes that the effectiveness of the church's evangelism is devastated by disputes among its members. Thomas Manton says more bluntly, divisions in the church breed atheism in the world. Divisions in the church breed atheism in the world. You know, sadly, each of us could probably share a story or two of how a nasty church fight, how an ugly church dispute made a family member, a friend, a neighbor lose their luster for the church. You, know, you may have personally seen how, how disunity among the church can push people away from the church. But I want you to know that the good news is the opposite of this is true. That disunity pushes, pushes people away from the church, but unity draws people into the church. If Jesus says in these verses that his purpose in calling the church to be unified is, is, is to draw the world in. Simply put, when the church is unified, the world takes notice because the church is, is, is designed, the church was created to be a visual display of God's kindness, God's goodness, God's glory, and God's love. Now consider this. The world doesn't have a single photograph of Jesus. The world doesn't have a single portrait that was painted of Jesus. Jesus. 
And the world doesn't have a single sermon recording of Jesus. So in a very real way, the world doesn't know what Jesus looks like. And the world doesn't know what Jesus sounds like. But the world sees and hears the church every single day. And so church, the question for us is, are we sending them the right message? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word, Lord. I thank you for the privilege that we have in John 17 to see exactly what was on Jesus' heart on, on the eve of the crucifixion. And Father, we're so thankful that he followed through with it. That, that, that he glorified you by being obedient all the way to the cross. And that you glorified him and raised him up and sat him at your right hand. And Father, we're thankful that, that the disciples were, were sanctified. That they went from these men who were, who were trembling in the corner behind locked doors, these men who boldly proclaimed the gospel even under the threat of death. And we're thankful that their, their writings and their story have been recorded for us into the New Testament. We're thankful for that revelation. Thankful that they finished the race well. And so, Father, while we're thankful that Christ was glorified, we're thankful they are sanctified. We know that the third part of this is the work that stands before us. That we would be unified. Father, we know that we're all very different people and unity doesn't come easy for us because we're human. But Father, help us to see that the gospel unifies us above everything else. Help us not to be distracted by secondary issues. Help us to, to decipher what is gospel truth and what is our own personal preferences. Father, help us be unified. Help us become perfectly one so that the world would see it and the world would want to be a part of it. That's our prayer this morning. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your son. And we thank you for the cross. We pray these things in his name. Amen.